This is the ICO Alert Podcast, Episode 12. I'm your host, Robert Finch, founder of ICO Alert. ICO Alert maintains the only comprehensive list of every single initial coin offering. That includes all of the active ICOs that are happening now, as well as all of the upcoming ICOs. You can check out the full list on our website at icoalert.com. We are back this week, of course, after a one-week break. Uh, we are working on a lot of exciting new features that you will see on ICO Alert in the coming weeks and months. Uh, but we did take a break last week just to make sure everything was in order and book some really exciting podcast guests. One of those guests is on the podcast today, so let's go ahead and jump into it. My guest today is Roger Henney, the CEO and co-founder of Datum. Uh, Roger is pretty interesting. He actually lives in Hong Kong, so we're going to get some really good insight in this podcast uh, on the recent China ICO ban, uh, if you could call it that. Um, during the podcast, we'll also talk about Datum, how the platform will let users monetize their own data rather than giving those rights up to big companies like Facebook and Google, uh, and more about how their platform works and what they're trying to accomplish. Without further ado, let's get to it. Roger, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, so those who aren't familiar, you know, we're going to talk a lot about data today. Uh, I want to touch, uh, like I mentioned before the podcast, on China, the whole recent ICO ban, as people are calling it, um, and how sure. that may affect data and, and sort of the ICO space in general. Um, but first, for those who aren't familiar, could you give uh, like a brief overview of, of what Datum is and what you guys are trying to accomplish? Yes. Yeah, so Datum is really two things. Um, first of all, we're trying to build this decentralized global database for structured data um, that is run by the people for the people. So it's kind of a safe haven for your you know, personal sensitive user data. And then on top of that, the second part, we're trying to build this free data market um, where you control your own data and you're able to monetize your data. You're able to sell it or, or just share it freely with um, nonprofits and researchers, for example. Um, and we believe that this marketplace component is really key to, you know, this idea of having this global database and, and drive adoption of that. Um, if there's no incentive for people to store their data in, in you know, such a decentralized database, um, we, do, we don't think there will be sufficient adoption, right? And historically, I mean, we've seen many of these kind of uh, projects online where people can submit their data voluntarily, um, but usually they don't do very well. So this is basically what we're building is, you know, decentralized database uh, that stores your personal sensitive data and a marketplace on top of it um, to make sure that, you know, all the stakeholders incentives are aligned to uh, make this a big market. Okay, very cool. And what kind of data are we talking about here? Are we talking about like the, the photos that I upload to Facebook? Is it my health data uh, from like my Apple Watch? What kind of data are we or would be stored in your system? Yeah, that's a good question. And actually, it's not your your family photos. Um, so we specifically focus on data that machines understand, right? So we call this structured data. Um, essentially, it's stuff that you would put in an Excel um, file or, or in a database, right? Um, so what that means is when you move your phone around, the motion sensor collects data, right? Thousands of data points every second. And this is kind of structured data, right? This is data that other machines understand. Um, 
And so this is the data that we feel is, is also the most valuable. So, for example, it's things like what things do you like on Facebook, right? Um, that identifies what interests you have, and that is data that's valuable to advertisers. Um, it's data about your health, of course, right? How many steps do you take per day? Um, you know, what is your body temperature, your heart rate, and so on. So, again, this is data that machines and algorithms can read and interpret, right? And this is very different from um, from the files that you usually would say is like your personal data, like photos, right, or movies or, or stuff like that. Um, that data is valuable to you, but that data has very little value to, to other companies or, or to other machines, right? And so keep in mind, companies like, like Google and Microsoft are spending a lot of money building algorithms trying to understand what's in one of your family photos, right? And those algorithms are worse than a four-year-old um, in, in determining what's, what's in the picture. And so we specifically focus on the data that's already prepared for, for machines, so to say. Um, and, and that's basically where, where the value is, um, we, we feel, yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Well, I had no idea that the, the algorithms, I mean, obviously they're getting better, but I didn't realize that they were only as good as a, a four-year-old at identifying objects. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So who's the, you know, who's your target uh, customer? Like who's somebody that would want to come on to, to Datum? Look at all this uh, crowdsource data that people have been incentivized to, to, you know, upload to your network. Who Who's going to actually use this? I know you mentioned researchers. Would a, would a company like Google come and kind of supplement some of their data efforts and, and buy data that Datum has collected? Yeah, so look, we, we do think so. Um, I mean, if you look at Facebook and Google at the moment, they have maybe a 10% slice each of, of all the data that is around about you, right? The other slices may lie in, in governments, in, in other private companies. They may lie with, um, you know, health insurers and so on. Um, and this, this data allows Google, for example, to build stuff like Google Now. So to, to build this, you know, super crazy good personal assistance, they need to have your location, they need to be able to read your inbox, and they need to have your calendar, right? Um, so this is the 10% that they already have access um, to you. But with Datum, we're basically opening that up, right? And we're then allowing other developers to kind of have full access to your data. Of course, always under your control, right, if you grant that access. And so in the first step, we are not expecting Google to make you know, immediate use of Datum, but we do expect smaller developers to jump on this because it levels the playing field, right? It gives them a chance to access all the data, all of your data that is now locked up in all those other data silos, right? And it's really hard to access this, this data if you, were, you know, if you go through all the official APIs. And also, for example, for Google, they have very little APIs where you can access the really good data, right? So this data they keep to themselves. But the other person who has that data is, is you yourself, right? And that, that's what Datum does. It basically extracts that data, makes it available through a universal API. Um, and so in the first step, you know, we, sure, in, in you, you, you're getting paid for, for your data, right? And in the first step, we, we think it's going to be a few bucks per month for the typical user. So unless you sell your health data, for example, if you just sell, a, you know, what, what do you do on Facebook and Twitter, stuff like that. We expect that to be a few US dollars per month. And we think there's a huge segment of the market um, that you know, is interested in that. So basically install the data map, make a few bucks per month, right? It's kind of passive income on the side. So I think that's a strong um, value proposition. But of course, longer term, um, we really feel that Datum is able to build a totally new ecosystem of of apps and services that are able to use, you know, this whole breadth of your personal data, right, and create totally new services. And that's when we think, you know, datum becomes interesting to people who don't really care about making five bucks a month, right? 
So, I mean, our growth strategy is focused on, you know, the younger generation, get our app out there. And it's basically, you know, you can earn a bit of money with your data. And then longer term, once we reach critical mass, our focus is really on building kind of this universal API to empower other developers, right, to basically get access to your personal data. And again, it's always under your control, right? So, so you have the keys and you control the permissions to all these apps and yeah. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, that's a good point to, to kind of jump and talk about the incentive structure. Um, I was doing a little bit of research on how much money Facebook actually makes per person. Um, and the uh, stat I found is that uh, in the third quarter of last year, Facebook made about $4.01 per user. Um, so like a dollar something per month, dollar thirty-three. per yeah, month. Yeah, correct. Um, which is pretty interesting. I mean, are you guys actually, are you trying to kind of take that revenue? Obviously, this is separate revenue. Like Facebook is still going to be making that amount of money with advertising on Facebook for these users. But do you kind of see this as users getting their fair share of their data? Since right now, you know, everything you post on Facebook technically is owned by Facebook. They can do whatever they want with it. Is this kind of you like taking that money and, and giving it back to all of the users? Yes, correct. I mean, so as you mentioned, I... So we, we think it's going to be complementary in the beginning, right? It's not going to immediately cannibalize the, the revenue that Facebook has, uh, you know, the, the value that they're pulling out themselves. Um, the, the thing is, um, the way, you know, Facebook is monetizing this data is kind of in their own walled garden, right? But if you would give this Facebook data to, to other developers, there's other ways to, to monetize it, right, that don't directly cannibalize what, what Facebook is doing. Um, so, for example, Facebook is doing lots of ads, uh, you know, lots of revenue through ads on their own platform. But this um, data that you can uh, pull out of Facebook around your interests, right, that can be used by marketeers to, to target people like you to create lookalike audiences on other platforms, right, outside of Facebook. So we more see this as a complementary thing, yeah. Interesting. Can we talk about that for a second, the lookalike audience? Because um, I've done a little bit of advertising on Facebook where you can go in and, you know, search people's preferences. I want to advertise to people that like this page or are interested in cryptocurrency or football, whatever it may be. Um, is a lookalike audience just like, like, could you explain what that actually is and how that works? Sure. So lookalike audience is basically where you say, um, Facebook, please um, find other people that have the same interests than this list of people that I already have, right? And that that effectively lowers your advertising costs because the ads are much more targeted. So if you have a thousand people that you know, hey, these guys are interested in cryptocurrency and you want to reach out to more people interested in cryptocurrency, you give this list of 1,000 people. So effectively, it's their emails, right? Or some other uh, identifier. You give this to Facebook. And their algorithms will try to find people that are similar to, to those, right? And that's the lookalike audience. Um, and as you mentioned, that's, that's pretty important to lower the cost to, to advertisers. Um, so I guess typically you could say it, it probably can, you know, half the costs of your advertisements if you start using a lookalike audiences. Now, what you can do with Datum, right, is... The, the problem in the beginning is that you don't have a lookalike audience as an advertiser, right? So, but with Datum, you can basically buy this data, right? You can go in and, and basically say, hey, I want to have data from, you know, 1,000 people that are interested in cryptocurrency, right? The people get a little cut for that, right, for basically, you know, selling their data. And then you as an advertiser have this lookalike audience. And you can use that on Facebook and you can use that on, on any other ad platform. Okay, that's fascinating. So is that like the, and, and this was one of the questions I was going to ask you, like, um, how are people actually going to use this data to, you know, in turn make money if they're not doing research just for, for research's sake or um, for some kind of nonprofit or something? Uh, is this the main way you see people utilizing this data strictly for advertising? Or is there some other kind of revenue stream that you could see people um, pulling out of this? 
No, so actually we, we see a, a huge variety of um, use cases. Of course, one of the obvious things is, is the whole health sector, right? Um, so, you know, the, the medical research is, is very um, expensive, right? It's very expensive to get subjects on board. And so um, we initially in datum, by default, all data is anonymized and your identity is hidden, right? But we do provide a kind of slider where you can adjust this level of anonymity according to your, you know, what you're comfortable with sharing. And so we, we feel there is a market for, for example, health data, right? Your, your complete uh, iPhone health kit data together with your real identity, because at that point it becomes, you know, usable in, in research studies, right? And that data could be worth anywhere, you know, from 10 US dollars to 100 US dollars a month, right? If you compare that with recruiting subjects, you know, the traditional way, and then that's basically the cost um, to acquire this data. And wow. so if, you know, um, and then, but we, we've been talking, you know, a lot about the user now, but of course the data, I mean, we, we like to um, explore all these use cases around the user data, but of course we, we don't, you know, exclude other data. So it's also data from wearables that you own or smart home devices, even your Tesla um, car, right? Um, and then also, it's also for companies that own data, right? So we're not limiting this to individuals. And we've had um, a, a huge um, variety of companies contact us that are interested to put their data in our system or to buy data from our system. And that goes from you know, companies that they are collecting um, um, data from uh, low orbit satellites. So they put up these huge dishes and then they collect the, you know, the satellite data. And they, this data, for example, is, is used by other companies to do kind of predictive models, um, you know, that predict earthquakes and certain other um, events. Oh, wow. Um, and this is, this is basically, you know, there's already a huge data marketplace that exists, but this data marketplace is, you know, through individual negotiations, right? So company A picks up the phone and calls company B and says, hey, we have some data, right? So let's agree on some sort of API. And then we agree on some sort of kind of business framework. And we agree on how much it's going to cost and how are we going to exchange the money and all these kind of things, right? So we just want to streamline that. We want to have, you know, this simple framework where you can go and trade the data and um, there's a means of exchanging value, which is our datum token. There is a set of rules, a, a law, so to say, which is our smart contract. And very important, there's a means of measurement. So all the data in datum is tagged with metadata that identifies what is this data and in what quantity is it available and in what structure, right? Um, and we feel these three things are really important. They're basically the, the pillars of, of free trade that we already have, and we want to you know, enable trade of data. And so we are introducing these three mechanics, right, that lay the foundation of this data marketplace. Yeah, that's great. And to, to talk a little bit more um, about how the, the system actually works, I was, you know, looking through your white paper and on your website, and I noticed it's kind of a, a multifaceted system. Um, so like first, you have users that are submitting their data to Datum, um, which is then stored securely. So I assume, uh, are, are you just encrypting that data before you sort of store it on your network? As yes, correctly. Okay. Yes, of course. So it's encrypted and using the same encryption as Bitcoin, right? So it's it's effectively un, unbreakable. Um, and what's also important is um, we are um, uh, implementing something called a proxy re-encryption. And this is something that allows you to store the data um, in, in an encrypted form on these storage nodes. So these you could compare to miners, right? Instead of mining something, they're actually storing your data and getting rewards for it. And this proxy re-encryption allows the network as a whole to re-encrypt that data for a data buyer without actually um, decrypting the actual data. Um, 
So that's a key point um, in, in our data marketplace. Um, in, in order for us to not have to rely too much on off-chain key exchange, which is also okay, but it's just kind of ineffective, right? So this is kind of so, some of the you know magic that that makes the whole data exchange efficient um, and automated. Okay, and for the average user, when you're talking about re-encryption, basically um, that's just a way so that when all of these node operators that are securing this data, which I, I assume is kind of similar to SiaCoin or storage, uh, the storage network, these decentralized yeah. networks, yeah. Um, you essentially have a way that they can then kind of unlock that data for these advertisers and these people who are buying this data, but without all of the node operators actually getting to see that data. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Yes. Okay. How does yeah. that, I mean, how does that work? Do you have um, like a, a less technical uh, explanation of it or something that like the average listener could understand? Um, so effectively, the, the, the key is that the encryption can be transformed, right, through another key. Um, so there isn't really an easy way to explain it. Um, yeah. 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 That's totally uh, fine. I mean, I, I think I, it, yeah. people kind of can understand it, I think, with like, uh, uh, essentially all they need to know is that the nodes can't see it, but the people buying it can once they actually pay for it, which is great because, I mean, then you maintain the integrity of your information and your data there without, you know, the node operator being, being able to steal it. Um, exactly, yeah. So it's interesting, um, your actual marketplace here to talk about kind of the third piece of this, which is like the data or the actual marketplace where people can come in. You said you're trying to, you know, streamline and, and sort of make that whole process more efficient. Um, uh, in your white paper, it mentions that it runs on top of Ethereum. Um, and I, I had a couple questions just about the scalability of the Ethereum network. Obviously, we have Raiden and Plasma and a couple other proposed yeah. solutions um, that are in the works, some of which are further along than others to, to kind of make the Ethereum network more scalable. Um, for those people that are listening right now, the Ethereum network can support about 30 transactions per second, um, which obviously if there are millions and millions of, of people buying um, this data, if, if these individual data points have to be uh, transmitted on the Ethereum blockchain separately, that wouldn't work. Um, so my question is kind of two-part. Um, when a user comes in, when a company comes in and says, hey, I want to buy these million data points here, this person's Facebook data, or these million people's Facebook data, how is that removed from the network? Like, Does each piece of data have to be assigned in a smart contract and, and kind of passed a, a, across the Ethereum network? Um, or is it just kind of one smart contract right. that executes that unlocks all of that data for them? Yeah, correct. So uh, actually, when we started, we we had this vision. Okay, we we do the trading on an atomic level, meaning you know, literally each piece of data, right, could be transacted and and accounted for. Um, the issue with that is, um, as you mentioned, right. So Ethereum is out there. It's relatively mature. It's it's working now. These solutions for other blockchains that have much higher throughput are still kind of very immature. Um, so what we decided to do and what's really kind of important for Datum is we, we wanted to take, you know, relatively mature building blocks. Um, so in order not to have a high technology risk and in order to be able to really deliver this, you know, data marketplace um, quickly. So we're you know, launching test network before Christmas and then uh, the main network um, in June of next year. And um, so what that meant is we went the route of basically saying, OK, in the first phase, Datum will basically sell data in bulk. So meaning your data is aggregated on a daily or even monthly basis, depends on the data, right? So in order to fit into these transaction or, you know, throughput limits of, of Ethereum. Um, and we still wanted to, you know, use Ethereum now in this moment for this because we felt, hey, look, this is something that, that you know, is working right now and we can get this off the ground, right? Um, by, you know, bulking up transactions like that. And in the future, sure, right, once um, another blockchain is out there that really 
delivers on this, you know, kind of magic vision of, you know, super high throughput, then we can always kind of see how can we incorporate that, right? How could we migrate to that? Um, so we're basically saying, look, Ethereum is a solid choice at the moment. It's a stepping stone, right? Um, and it enables us to basically deliver um, on, on the basic concept of this data marketplace. Sure, in the future, eventually, also for Datum, we would really like to get down to this atomic level, right? Where each piece, little piece of data is basically, you know, it's possible to transact on, on just one piece of data instead of on this bulk um, things. Okay, and are there blockchains that, you know, obviously you said they're kind of, uh, they're kind of immature, they're, they're in development right now, but are there blockchains that you guys have in mind uh, that you might use that may be more scalable? Sure, built? yeah, I mean, there's IOTA is out there um, and, and Tezos to some um, degree. Um, so, so, yeah, I would say, I mean, IOTA is, is, the, is the big one that's out there anyway. Um, and um, so we're definitely looking at that. Um, just again, we felt at the moment there's, way too much risk if if you know we we rely on that for datum because that introduces a third party um kind of uh, a dependency right and if that third party if anything goes wrong there or they can't deliver that that really would would put us back right okay and can you can you clarify that a bit who's the the third party that uh would have so if we if we would rely on iota right we just have to rely on on that not being uh, so so mature right and we don't know what yeah and so by us basically using ethereum at the moment right there we we don't expect any problems there the only restriction is the amount of transactions that we can put through right Right, that makes sense. And that's interesting because, you know, anywhere I see people talking about IOTA, it's really just a lot of confusion. Like, they say it's quantum secure, but is it really quantum secure? Like, how does this thing actually work since it is a DAG instead of a, a blockchain? Um, but this is all very interesting. I wanted to, to kind of take a break from the data and we'll, we'll get back to this for a second uh, or in a second, excuse me. Um, but I wanted to get your take on the recent announcement. Uh, so for those of you that aren't familiar, um, I'm not sure what rock you're living under or maybe you're new to the crypto space, which is totally fine. Um, but the Central Bank of China recently, uh, as you're listening to this about a week from when this will go live or a week before this goes live, excuse me, um, the Central Bank of China came out and essentially put, put out a ban on ICOs. Um, the actual wording is kind of up in the air. I've heard some people that have translated it say that it's it's not a full-on ban. It's more of like uh, they're looking to regulate ICOs more in the future, similar to the SEC's announcement in the U.S. Uh, recently. But Roger, what is your take on this? I mean, do you think that this is an actual ICO ban in China, that ICOs aren't going to be a thing? Or do you think that this is more of just uh, kind of a short-term thing since China in the past is kind of known for coming out and, and banning things like Bitcoin before they, you know, quote-unquote repeal the ban? Um, what's your take on all this? Yeah, so look, so first of all, it's, uh, I mean, the timing is, is also a bit expected because um, in October there is this uh, party congress coming up in China, right? And and China is well known to kind of tighten up things before that and then uh, slowly relax it afterwards again. Um, and also there has been a huge... Um, kind of an excess in the Chinese market, right, with these ICOs. So a lot of the ICOs that were also running in China were, were you know, kind of issued in China, maybe haven't gotten very big press in, in the West, right? Um, so so I'm basically just saying the size of the, this market in China was also pretty big. Um, yeah. So we, we, we do think at the moment it's, it's pretty much a, a, a um, more or less a total ban. But um, so as you mentioned, right, the, the, everyone basically expects that to be relaxed at some point. But of course, probably 
you know, with, with some rules introduced on, the, you know, that make China comfortable. And also to mention, I mean, the big problem for China is that their own currency is basically regulated and you can't really move it in or out the country. And so this whole cryptocurrency thing kind of circumvents that, right? So th that is a big um, kind of issue to, to China anyway that they don't like to see. And now this ICO um, craze has just been fueling the, the demand for cryptocurrency so much. So we also think it's a bit related to that, you know, not just uh, to the okay. fact of the ICO fundraising, but to the fact that, you know, these cryptocurrencies enable fund outflow, unregulated fund in and outflow of China, right, which China doesn't like. Yeah, no, that makes sense. When I, I was in Japan uh, several years ago, and I was talking to uh, a Chinese couple there that I was staying at one of their Airbnbs, and they had mentioned that you know them and, and a lot of other people in China tend to try to buy property in other countries as kind of a, a store of wealth since the, the currency is very hard to move in and out. And of course, that may just be those people. Uh, I'm not speaking for all Chinese people, um, but it was interesting to hear. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, do you think that that's going to affect the ICO market in any way? Not really from an investment standpoint, but from, uh, do you think we're we're just not going to see any ICOs from China. Do you think there's going to be like a resurgence of ICOs in the West now that the SEC has, you know, begun to, to lay out the initial framework for ICO regulation? Yeah, so interestingly, uh, yesterday uh, evening, Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Securities and Futures Commission also made a statement, right? And they basically reaffirmed the similar stance that the US and Singapore have taken. Um, so... I mean, some people have said that's almost like an invitation to all the kind of mainland China based ICOs, right? To basically say, hey, why, why don't you come to Hong Kong and do it there? And right. I mean, if you if you look traditionally at the function of, of Hong Kong, right? I mean, that's what, what Hong Kong has always been, right? So, for example, um, Hong Kong is one of the freest economies, but it is kind of part of China and it is basically a gateway, right, for a lot of funds um, flowing in and out of China, right? That basically flow to Hong Kong first and, and then in and out of China. So, yeah, we, we think this is actually really strengthening Hong Kong as a, as a kind of ICO hub. Um, and then also, I mean, in reality, as, as you mentioned, this, this Chinese couple that you, you met in Japan, right? I mean, a lot of the big money in China is somewhat offshore already. So um, we, we would still expect that, that money, right, to look for... Um, for ICO uh, opportunities, right, and and a lot of these things happen through through Hong Kong um, anyway. So, so look, I mean, the the, the Chinese currency, the renminbi, has been you know restricted for for a long time, right? But that that doesn't mean that you know, for example, the Chinese go to to Macau, which has you know many times more gambling revenue than than Las Vegas, oh, wow. and somehow the money still flows there, right? Because <laughs> the, actually the money is restricted to go there, same as it goes anywhere else. But so that, that means, I mean, people find workarounds, right? And somehow the yeah, so we don't expect actually that to have a huge impact on on the market really, right? It's not like half of all the liquidity in the ICO space has been, you know, eradicated now that China is out of the picture. We, right. we don't see it that way. No, that makes sense. That's uh, that's great insight, uh, especially, you know, with your knowledge of Hong Kong and how that's kind of played uh, uh, into the, the whole system over the years, if you could call it that. Um, but that's great. I, I really appreciate the insight there. This is kind of a, a question I'm going to continue to ask some of our podcast guests, um, just as this this whole situation develops, similar to how I've asked people about the SEC in the U.S. in the past. Um, but to jump back to data, um, we were talking a lot about you know uh, incentivizing users to actually share this data. 
Um, you mentioned with the health kit data, which was you know the most significant of all the numbers. You said Facebook maybe a couple bucks a month um, or, or some of the other social networks. Um, when it comes to health data, you mentioned between ten and a hundred dollars a month, which you know for the average person uh, that's that's a huge difference in their income. Uh, for somebody to be able to potentially on the high end make twelve hundred dollars a year extra just by by selling their health kit yeah. data from their iPhone, I mean that that's massive. Um, one of the questions I had sort of surrounding that would be about the user's real identity. You know, you mentioned somewhere in there, and I may have misunderstood. Um, is it true that a user has to share their real identity and associate their real identity with their health data, or can that be anonymized in some way? So that's up to the user, right, to, to determine how, how much he's comfortable to sharing. I think what's important to realize is that the context of the data really matters. So what I mean is if, if I give you health data without telling you, hey, this is from, you know, a man 30 years old from the US, then that data is only of, of you know, of limited value, right? So this context, so like who, who does this data belong to in some cases is super important. Um, and especially in the case, usually, uh, you know, when it comes to health data. Um, so that is entirely up to the user. And the way we see this work out is that the market will basically set pricing. So the data buyers can actually um, set what kind of identity requirements they have and what kind of prices they are willing to pay, right? And then so it's entirely up to the user to say, hey, look, I, I feel comfortable sharing my health data, but basically not my identity, all the way to, hey, I'm comfortable sharing, you know, my full Uport or civic identity, right? So we do have plans to, to integrate um, um, civic, for example, that you could actually kind of certify, right, that, hey, this data is actually from a real identified person. And if you think from the point of um, the researchers, right, I mean, some research programs will require this kind of identification, right? So in order to read out fake data there and just ensure that, you know, this this is, you know, real data that's linked to a real person that is, you know, exactly fits the criteria of the study, they would need to have this this kind of certified identity. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, I mean, to your point about this potentially replacing or, or kind of being a supplement for, uh, you know, case studies, whether it's a medical case study or, mm. or something like that, um, that I think is very powerful. Uh, going Going to your point about, you know, fake data. Um, without kind of the identity verification portion of this, because I assume with some of these things you, you won't actually have to uh, associate your real identity. Maybe there won't even be an option for it, even though on some things you do have the option to add it. Um, what's stopping someone from going out there and you know taking their botnet of 1,000 or maybe even 100,000 fake Facebook accounts and selling that data to Datum? And, and if they're making two bucks a month off 100,000 Facebook yeah. accounts, obviously $200,000 a month, that's a massive amount of money um, that would be kind of drained from, from this pool of uh, people that are interested in buying the data. Do you guys have some kind of system sure. in place to prevent that? Yeah, so first of all, we, we have the trust and rating system, right? So we expect that, you know, if data buyers suspect that, you know, data is um, is not kosher, it's, it's essentially fake, right? They they can um, basically downrate the, the data seller. And, and we do expect that to um, develop in a way that, um, you know, in the building, you have to build some certain trust, right? Now, when when we're talking about these values, so you, you mentioned before that the Facebook takes about, you know, one US dollars, four US dollars per quarter per user. So um, we we don't really see like one Facebook data set to be worth two US dollars, right? It's it's maybe going to be like 50 cents or something like that. Right. Um, at, we, we feel the economics are simply not there at large scale to, to try and convincingly fake all these, um, you know, social profiles um, linked link together. Um, 
So what we're basically saying, it's, it's pretty easy to identify um, the, these kind of, you know, generically created um, fake profiles. Um, and, and we do think that data buyers will, will you know, find it easy to, to read these out. Um, and so the economics are then not there if you have to, you know, if you have to enter the network and, and you know, stake uh, a little bit of, of tokens every time to create your trust, right? It's it's really difficult for, for the spammers to, to kind of do this economically, right? Because oh, okay. the risk is just too high to, um, yeah. And also what I should mention is, um, so it's basically to prevent spam, because anyone could come in and upload like a terabyte of, of totally random data, right? right. That no one wants. So effectively, anyone wanting to store data in Datum needs to pay for it, right? But for the end users, of course, if you install the Datum app, we will make this transparent. So you install the app, maybe you verify your phone number. And what we basically do is we give you a little micro credit, right, to get you going. So you won't have to put up any, you know, debt tokens in the beginning to get started. And then as you do some transactions, right, we basically take this micro credit away again, right? Um, but this really... Um, hinders kind of large-scale spam of the network, right? Because basically you have to pay to put data in. And then if you do that at large scale and, and automate it, um, it, it, there's just no economic incentive, right? It's too risky to put up, you know, 50 cents or one US dollar to possibly make 50 cents back. Right, no, that makes sense. And going to your, your point about the reputation system or the rating system for this data, um, if companies, when they're buying this data, if they're not able to buy it on, on that atomic level, like identify each separate piece and track each separate piece of data separately, when they actually come through and you know do a rating or, or a score of that data and the accuracy of the data, would they be rating the overall pool of data um, or would they then somehow be able to no. go back to the atomic level? Yeah, no, it's always linked to, to one identity in the in the datum network, right? So when I say identity, it's not linked to your real identity. It's basically like, you know, one Bitcoin wallet or one Ethereum wallet, right? Okay. So effectively, it's always linked to one kind of source of data, right? And that this identity, right, that you have in the datum network, that, that is the identity that, that is building the trust, right? And then a lot of the opportunities to sell your data will require a certain level of trust, right? So that you had built some report previously and yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So it's really just, uh, I mean, to clarify on that question, can companies rate the specific data, like the specific, the specific identities? Yes. Okay. Exactly. Okay, so so if, if you sell your like data for Facebook, for example, right? And that gets um, aggregated together with with one thousand other people's um, like data. Then yes, companies can can still break that down to the like data that you provided, right? From your kind of datum identity, and that is what gets rated. Uh, okay, that makes sense. And to to talk about you know the datum token, the the DAT DAT token. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that for a little bit. So obviously, you know, it solves serves kind of multiple uh, functions in this whole ecosystem. So you mentioned like a user has to kind of stake that initially um, to to build their trust and you know say, hey, this data is actually real. It's not fake. Um, uh, I, I'm basically proving that or, or alleging that with this token. And, and if it's found out to be fake, you guys will take the token. Um, are the people who are actually, you know, running the storage network, running the storage nodes, do they get paid in, in the DAT tokens as well? Yes, correct. So that's pretty similar to, to miners and on other blockchains, right? So they right. get paid for storing the data. And also, 
critically, they also have to stake an amount of, of tokens to become and to continue to be a um, storage node. And that's also pretty critical because they have to maintain certain, I would say, SLAs, service level agreements, right? What that means is you want to have your data, um, you know, to be all, all, always available, right? So these storage nodes are incentivized to keep the data up for certain periods of time and also to ensure that there is low latency and good performance. Um, technically, these, these storage nodes are actually small databases. So what the people are running is they don't need any graphic card, but they do need a hard disk capacity, storage capacity, and also they need a certain amount of RAM and CPU. Um, so these storage nodes will actually make pretty good use of a normal um, uh, PC. Also, they would make pretty good use of a, a GPU mining rig um, of the resources that are basically not very efficiently used at the moment, right? which is the CPU, the memory, and some storage capacity. Um, so yeah, so the storage nodes basically earn the datum token, and again, they have to stake a certain amount to make sure that you know to keep them honest, basically. Um, and then if they fail to meet the data availability, um, uh, you know, uh, guidelines, then um, they they can lose some of that, uh, some of those stake tokens. And then, of course, on 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 the other end, the data buyers will then use the datum token, right, to to buy the data and. Also, so the datum token is a pure utility token, um, meaning uh, in, in, in certain activities in a network, the tokens actually get spent a very tiny fraction, a percentage of the amount of remaining tokens. And this essentially leads to deflation of the overall token supply over time. Um, and this deflation is, is what you know, essentially, if the marketplace does well, it could lead to, uh, you know, an appreciation in value of, of the token, right? Because the intrinsic value of the token is the services that you can, you know, redeem it for in the network, right? We haven't fully um, fixed uh, the exact points at which the tokens get spent yet. Um, obviously, that is critical. And then people have been asking us, look, so how many, you know, tokens can I earn with the storage nodes and how many tokens I have to stake? Um, we, we don't want to fix those amounts before we have basically have the test network up and running and, and can see how, how this economy performs right in, in the real world. And, and we've seen this similar concepts with Dash and other kind of blockchains that use these master nodes, right? That it can be quite tricky to set the, you know, the exact economics and figure that out to keep keep a healthy market, right? So we kind of basically saying, look, we're putting the basic framework in place now. And we'll get that up in a test network. Um, we'll incentivize the test network um, with some um, uh, real rewards behind it so that we have a real economy. And then we will, you know, kind of tweak that on the test network to, to figure out the, you know, eventual um, um, exact amounts that you need to run a storage node or, or stake to keep your storage node running. Okay. And in terms of the actual um, use of the token, you know, you mentioned it is a utility token. Um, what's the reason for, for actually having a token in this case? Like, are all of these functions something that could be accomplished, you know, just using Ether on the Ethereum blockchain? Or does do you actually need um, a token to, to accomplish some of these functions? No, so the, I mean, the one, one of the very basic things is this exchange of data, right? And that is governed by the smart contract. Um, and so this you can't just do with... Uh, Ethereum on, on its own or, or, you know, basically Bitcoin or anything that doesn't have a smart contract. Um, so, you know, this release of value and, and basically binding the exchange of the datum token to the exchange of the data happening, right? So that is a, a typical function that a smart contract can provide, right? 
And so, I mean, yeah, we, we, we really do need um, to create a token to be able to, to have our smart contract with our own logic, right? And I talked previously um, about this set of laws that basically govern or set of rules, right, that govern the, the, the marketplace. And that is basically the, in the end, that is the smart contract and the interactions that the smart contract requires, right? So at what point does the debt token get transferred if some... Um, activity on the datum blockchain, right, on our decentralized database is, is true, right? So if the data, you know, is exchanged, then yes, the datum token is, is being transferred. Okay, but isn't that something uh, that you could accomplish just by, you know, locking Ether in a, an Ethereum smart contract and saying, you know, hey, when these conditions are met, we're going to transfer this amount of Ether to, you know, the people that, uh, that that's share their data? Um, not yeah, theoretically on the Ether part, yes, but we still need to run our smart contract, right? So that, that does require us to create a token, right? So just purely on the exchange of values, sure, you could argue, hey, um, you know, why, why, why do people have to use the, this debt currency, right? Why don't you just use Ethereum itself? But I mean, technically, we, we still need to have this smart contract and that's why we need to create a token, right? Um, and then also, I think it's important to, to see this, this idea of, um, look, we, we want to kind of create value for token holders, right? Um, I mean, the token holders are, are backing the, the network, right? And they should be rewarded in some way. And so this, this function that I described before, this deflation of the debt token supply, that's only possible if you have your own token, right? right. So with Ethereum, you can control the supply of Ethereum. And okay, so that is yeah. also a critical point that, hey, to incentivize the people who back this network and keep it up and running, right? Um, we, we basically need to have this yeah, our yeah, own and I token. also, I think I was misunderstanding, and I'm sure there are many people listening, scratching their heads, going, what does he mean you can't make a smart contract without a token? But I think my, my point of misunderstanding was, uh, when you're referring to like your smart contract, the damn smart contract, you're actually referring to the token, because all a token is, is a smart contract, right? Yeah, correct. Oh, okay, great. Now, that, that makes a ton of sense. Um, uh, that that's awesome though, but it's it's an interesting question that I've had a lot of people email me and say, uh, hey, when you have these podcast guests on, you know, can you ask them why they need a token or if they actually need one? Um, yeah, and look, I I would just like to expand on that a bit. So a lot of um, projects are essentially, for example, backing something in the real world with with a token, right? Um, and then a lot of these projects, it becomes really questionable because in terms of their smart contract, there is nothing digital that they can immediately act upon, right? Um, because everything is, is out in the real world. So in a, in, a, in, a, in a lot of these projects, you could really argue, hey, why, why don't they just use um, fiat or Ethereum, right? So if it's a real estate fund, it's a real estate fund, right? So just saying you run that on top of Ethereum, that doesn't change you know, any of the mechanics behind it, right? right? And the houses are still real houses in the real world. And a smart contract can't do anything automated around that, right? It's not like the smart contract can check anything, you know, is the house still there and how much money, you know, should, should the tenant, you know, get. And so I, I think for Datum, what is, um, and, and many other, you know, ICOs as well, but for Datum certainly it's true. It's like we're a pure kind of digital play, right? So first of all, this decentralized blockchain, the decentralized storage of data, that can only really be done, you know, could be done, not be done like a few years ago because the technology was not there, right? And now we have this ability to create this huge decentralized database that is run by the people for the people. So that's exciting. That's new, right? That's only possible now. Um, and then also the smart contracts really allow to govern the exchange of value 
in this marketplace and automatically tie that to this decentralized database, right? So we can actually automate this exchange of data and tie it to the exchange of value. So meaning, you know, the debt token, we, we don't need an external kind of oracle or so to basically verify, oh, you know, party A has sold the house to party B. And because that is true, right, please release the, the tokens, you know, uh, that are governed by the smart contract. No. So in our case, it can all be automated because our, you know, the good that we're trading in is also digital. And and for us, that is kind of the exciting part. And, and you know, we're not so excited about these projects that tie just tie stuff to the real world because a lot of times, yeah, we don't see... It's it's just not that valuable because the smart contract just has to rely on these real world things, and then you could just as well manually control it, right? Yeah. And so we're basically saying in our case, it all happens automatically. It's all digital, right? So it really makes sense. It comes full circle. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's a great example of where like there there's a real immediate use case for a platform like this. Whereas you know the example you mentioned was something like real estate. Um, until the entire you know sort of housing record, until your deed is actually a unique token on the blockchain. Um, I think a lot of those platforms are, are kind of getting ahead of themselves or really, you know, setting up the platform now so that when those things, if those things are ever implemented, it will work. Um, but with Datum, it's especially great just because all of the all of the pieces are there for this thing to actually work and actually have a practical use um, in the economy. So I think that's great. Um, talking more about like the, the long-term viability of this actual platform, how is Datum, uh, the company, going to survive in the long term? Like, are you guys taking a fee um, from every transaction that happens? Are you guys taking a, a like a, a finder's fee essentially for, you know, letting marketers and other people that want to buy this data access the platform? Um, or are you guys strictly going to live off of the money that you raise in the ICO? Yeah, so basically um, we, we specifically built Datum to not have any commercial interest um, in it by, by the entity. So look, the Datum Foundation right, is set up to, to it kick off the initial development and then help maintaining the network. But eventually it's, it's all kind of, you know, it's all going to be open sourced and we hope the community will jump on helping out to maintain it as well. So yes, the money that is raised, right, is, is basically to start the marketplace and grow it, right, grow it big. And um, then the other thing is the token reserve, right, that the foundation is holding. Um, so 29% of all issued tokens is, is held by the foundation. And, and these tokens are to be used for, you know, user growth and, and, you know, marketing activities and giveaways. But also, you know, they are used to kind of maintain the continued operation um, of the network helped by through the foundation. And I think it's important to, to realize, so we, there is really no cut built in. Yeah, there is, so this, this foundation is, is uh, yeah, not taking any cut of any transaction. Um, and also for us as part of the team, right, we, we are just like any other token holders. So we have exactly the same interests and there is no kind of hidden fees or, you know, any kind of profit or revenue being, you know, created outside of the actual token um, holders. Oh, okay. yeah. So you guys really are, you know, making this true foundation that is truly trying to build a peer-to-peer -peer decentralized uh, network. Yeah, and we think that is absolutely key because look, if we if we just try to create another Facebook or Google, another huge data silo, right? No one no one is gonna gonna back this, right? And it's really right. important that this 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 data network where you store your own data, right, is basically democratic and it's not run by another large entity because that would defeat the whole point of doing it uh, to begin with, right? Right. So yeah, we're really setting this up, you know, as as a kind of foundation that you know the aim is to to 
built this network and this network is basically run by these storage nodes and sure you know in the beginning and this is an interesting aspect of of other of these projects as well so in the beginning of course we need to retain some control to kick off this network right but our plan is to then you know transition the control to a a real decentralized autonomous organization and some sort of governance framework right where the token holders are basically controlling the future of the network um and i mean there's many projects um uh, working on on the governance aspect of this um as well and we're excited you know to 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 see what uh, what comes out in a year or two um as a usable um concept right and and i think it's going to be exciting to see um what how, you know how how will that turn out in the real world right so as you know um, i mean in the states or so maybe the elections don't always turn out how people think they will right and i think it's going to be interesting to see once you really have these autonomous decentralized organizations where the token holders can vote on the outcome you, you know will will the outcome always be what what everyone thinks or you know what's best for the network um, but we're excited to explore that um but again, we, we have no illusions. I mean, you couldn't do this to, to kick something off, right? So you have to right. basically say, hey, we, we kick this off. We have control of the network initially, right? Um, we grow this to a certain point. Then we hand over full control to the token holders, right? Once right. we have established this framework of governance. Yeah, yeah it reminds me a lot of, uh, I'm not sure if you heard, you've heard of Ethfinex, but it essentially is Bitfinex, which is a centralized exchange launching their own um, Ethereum-based decentralized exchange built on top of the ZeroX protocol. Um, and they're doing something similar where, you know, it starts out, it's it's semi-decentralized in terms of like the actual order book, but they still have some kind of control. And, you know, over the course of their roadmap, they kind of relinquish that control to the actual community to make a, a truly decentralized entity, which is interesting in its own right from their perspective, not to go on a tangent, um, just because they're kind of putting themselves out of business, which is fascinating. Um, but talking about your platform, uh, you know, you mentioned you guys should have a, a working beta out um, by December um, what does the roadmap look like? Like, when are we going to see the actual live version of datum, you know, being used in the wild? When are people going to actually start purchasing the data? Um, and what are users going to be able to, you know, get paid for their Facebook or their HealthKit data? Yeah, so we actually also plan to launch the end user apps um, before Christmas. Um, and um, so as I briefly mentioned before, so this will run on the test network, right? So the debt tokens running on there are, are not sort of the real tokens. They, they don't really carry any value in the test network. However, we are um, um, trying to back these test debt tokens with some uh, real value. We're still discussing how exactly that would work, but you know, we, we could allocate a, a small amount of the real debt tokens and say, look, at the end, you know, anyone with tokens in a test network gets gets a certain um, um, cut of a real debt token. Um, What's really important is, uh, I think from a product perspective, right, we will basically launch um, most functionality um, by, by end of this year. And we really need this half year then to see how the economics um, play out um, before we then launch the, the main test network, which is scheduled to happen in uh, June 2018, um, so a bit less than a year from now. Um, yeah, so I think roadmap-wise, we're basically saying, look, a lot of the functionality will be there by end of the year, and even end users will basically be able to download the app and start earning some rewards, right? So maybe we'll allow users to convert their test network that into, let's say, an Amazon um, you know, gift card or, or things like that. Okay, and in terms of development, is this something that's you know actively in development, or are you all waiting uh, to secure funds through your ICO to actually get started? No, 
No, no, of course not. So we have four four people already um, uh, working on this, and actually, in, in about um, one week, we'll release um, our first alpha versions of our um, of two things: of the datum app and of a trading um, dashboard. Um, and then, so so those are two of the the main components that users will interact with, or basically data owners, so end users that install our mobile app. And then for the trading dashboard, that's basically what developers would, would interact with, right? So to kind of explore and browse the data that is available and then put in bits for data and buy data um, and then access that through the API. So those two components will come out in a, in a kind of alpha preview um, in about a week. Um, and then going from there, we, we actually plan to have kind of like a monthly um, release cycle where, where we release stuff um, to the public, right? And then um, going up to end of the year where we kind of have this fully working end-to-end um, uh, uh, -end test network uh, live. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. And just to clarify for those listening, um, since this is not going live today, it should be really just a few days from the time this goes live where uh, uh, when, that, when that kind of information uh, gets released, um, since it is a week from the day that we're recording this. Um, uh, sure. Yeah. So we plan to release the alpha on the 12th of September. Okay. Perfect. So that's uh, next Tuesday. Uh, yeah. And that's that's actually the day that uh, you're launching your ICO. Is that correct? Yeah. So on on that date, um, we we are still in the process of setting up the foundation, and it's likely we are going to push out this date a bit, and it's going to be. Probably by the time people listen to this podcast, we'll probably made an announcement, uh, yeah, pushing back that date slightly. Oh, okay, and is is the main reason for the the pushback? You know, this is something very common that happens in the ICO space. Whether it was like the SEC announcement pushing them back or something else, is it strictly just you guys trying to get the foundation up and running and make sure you know all your ducks are in a row, or is there something else that's causing the the delay? Yeah, so it is slightly related to to the recent announcements, right? Um, so we, so our team is spread out a bit all over the world, right? But we, so I'm situated in Hong Kong, and we do have a team here. Um, so so it does have some relation to the the recent announcement um, by China, right? Um, and we're just kind of trying to make you know double ensure basically that everything is set up correctly, um, and also we. I mean, this is really important for us because um, the, I think it's it's critical that as a project we we try and and really um, set this up within the regulations of the authorities because what would be really bad is if if your project gets shut down right later on because you you are not within the regulations and I mean that that hurts everyone right so really focused on on ensuring that and so yeah with the recent announcements we we just have to do some. Uh, uh, re restructuring and then this stuff kind of takes some time right so that's why you have to push out the dates a bit yeah absolutely no that makes sense and that that's been kind of a, a pattern that's been happening um which has just been interesting to see you know how how these new regulations are, are really actually affecting the ico space um, but i think like you mentioned in definitely in a positive light to, to get this space regulated um it only adds legitimacy to the space and uh will only benefit it in the long run um so we'll be sure you know let us know as soon as you have that that new date we'll be sure to update ico alert so if you're listening um you know check out ico alert we'll have the the most up-to-date launch date for datum there um, I think that's a good place to stop, though. I mean, if there's anything else that we didn't cover that you you know you were itching to say on this podcast, um, if you have anything exciting you'd like to share, uh, now's the time to do it. Um, no, I think that's that sums it up nicely. Um, our pre-sale is still open. I don't know if it's still going to be open when the podcast airs, um, but yeah, and look, we're we're excited um, to first of all 
we're kind of happy, as you mentioned, about all this regulation happening, right? That's actually good for the marketplace. And we're really excited to see next year, right, when a lot of these projects start to launch and you're actually able to use these, these decentralized systems. We're, we're excited for that point in time, right, when these things get real. Um, I think at the moment it's a lot about visions and theory, right? But next year should be exciting when we get to use um, all, all these new services and decentralized uh, products. Absolutely. Yeah, it'll be very cool to see uh, see this launch and, you know, see who's using it. And, and maybe who knows, maybe there'll be some kind of research breakthrough with somebody that, that is finally able to access this data from HealthKit or, or some other application. Um, so this has been great. Roger, um, last question, where can people learn more about Datum? What's your website? Uh, where can they find you? Yeah, so our website is uh, datum.org. Um, and all the information is basically there. Awesome. And that's D-A-T-U-M.org, correct? Correct. Perfect. That sounds great. Well, Roger, thank you so much for your time. I, uh, I sincerely appreciate it. I know it's very early for you there uh, in Hong Kong. We're about 12 hours apart. Um, but thank you so much for your time and best of luck with your ICO. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I sincerely appreciate it. If you'd like to request someone to be on the podcast in the future, tweet us at ICO Alert and let us know. Most of our guests are requests from listeners just like you, so we review every single recommendation that comes through in our Twitter feed. Uh, we'll look at everything. So if there's a lesser-known project that you think we should cover, you know, let us know. Maybe we'll have them on the podcast. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and be the first to hear our new episodes. And also, don't forget to check out ICOalert.com to see the only comprehensive list of active and upcoming ICOs. I'm your host, Robert Finch, and I'll be back next week with a brand new episode.